Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, Nicola Marola, president of Quebec-based producer Pixcom and vice president of international productions Jeanette Vienne, discuss how despite restrictions being lifted in the French-speaking Canadian province, the company's moving cautiously with 20 shows on hold. Cesar Diaz, chief executive of Miami-based distributor 7A Media, explains how the world of telenovelas is harking back to nostalgia in the face of COVID-19 and why the genre will endure beyond the pandemic. But first, David Shadrach-Smith, founder and president of Part 2 Productions, talks with Clive Whittingham about what life is like for the US indie located in New York, which has registered some of the worst coronavirus statistics in the world and is now one of the epicenters of protest and civil unrest in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. He also talks about his new Taste the Nation series for Hulu, hosted by Padma Lakshmi, and his hopes that in its own small way, it can help contribute to the debate around ethnic diversity in television. This year, we had a huge momentum starting out. We were in production on on a handful of series, and luckily, a few of them where we were actually able to complete production before the curtain kind of came down. But we also had a number of productions starting up and green lights that were getting ready to go in the field that were definitely put on hold. And we refocused our energies, like I think a lot of production companies have, on delivering um, both some development deals that we were in and trying to think of new ideas and new approaches that meet the moment. So, you know, I, I, I'm grateful that I think we, we have Things coming out, very excited about the Hulu series. We have CNN's long-running series, This Is Life, that the new season will be airing soon. And we're already starting to ramp up production or ramp up development for the next season of that. So I think we're grateful for what we have. Um, but, you know, I think we're definitely reeling, like everyone, from just the incredible uh, cessation of momentum that we came into this year with. Um, and we were really looking at, I, I, I think, one of our strongest years yet, and we are looking forward to getting back to that. <laughs> so did you, has it purely been a time for development or did you get into sort of quick turnaround and COVID style programming, filming remotely? How have you tackled the, the 12 weeks or whatever it's been now? Yeah. Yeah, we, you know, we did come out at the beginning thinking about programs and how to do them that could speak to the moment. And and what we found is, you know, I think our kind of storytelling, uh, well, let's just say at the beginning, we had no idea how long this was going to go on, and we still don't know how long this is going on. Um, but I think after kind of dabbling and reacting to the moment and where we were, I think we, we really settled back into what do we do best? What are the kind of stories that are eternal and universal and won't feel just very specifically, especially from a production point of view, of that moment? Um, and, and so I think we, we have definitely thought about different approaches and different framing and tonalities that we want to lean into as as the world you know you know recovers let's hope soon um but i think we kept our view kind of on the long game and and thinking about this the the shows and series that we're most passionate about and not compromising the way we want to tell those stories uh because of the moment 
you're east, east coast based is that right yeah we're based in new york in brooklyn right so what's the what's the situation there now with lockdown and restrictions and how do you see the rest of the year you're obviously hoping to, to get going i would think yeah yeah no i you know new york um which excels at so much in and i was born here i was raised here uh i will always think of New York as the greatest city on earth. And, you know, we happen to be the greatest at COVID-19 too. And that's a sad fact. You know, I think this was clearly now, by the numbers anyway, the hardest hit city in the world. You know, I think we transitioned very well as a company into working remotely and uh, still being able to get everything done, delivered, work together as a development team. But it's been cautious, you know, cautious thinking about production again. What are the what are the approaches? What are the clients asking us to do in terms of protection? And as you know, you know, we work a lot with very um, wonderful and and unique and diverse talent. And I think our primary concern is safety for for them and for our crews and for all of us. And that's that's definitely restricted us from jumping out the gate um, at the at the sign of the first sort of easing of of opening up but you know we're 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 getting through like everybody and trying to be really creative about when production starts how we're going to go about that you know brooklyn and new york right now is also in the midst of you know i would say a very you know very important social change moment as well so you know, on top of all the restrictions surrounding the pandemic, we also have daily curfews and <laughs> our office is two blocks from the Barclays Center, which has been one of the epicenters of, of the protests. So it's just, a, there's a lot going on, um, can definitely distract and keep our minds elsewhere, but also give us a lot of food for thought about what we as storytellers can do and as a company can do both you know for the betterment of of the world and understanding each other and being empathetic to each other's lives but but also you know continuing to promote and support the very diverse voices that we that we have all along and um sort of redouble our efforts on that so yeah it's been a very complex time and um you know, we're gratefully getting through it and seeing where it takes us next. So is both that social movement and the pandemic, is, is your development slate going to look very different on the other side of this? Are you, you know, are you not back to square one, but certainly <laughs> sort of broad, broad thinking about direction of travel? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think we've always been a very socially conscious company in terms of both how we work and the kind of stories and talent that we work with. I think we can do better. I definitely, I, I hear within our teams, you know, a, an, an energy to, you know, really meet this moment and be part of the change. And, and I, I think our past has been, I think, very informative to how we're going to go forward. I don't think we're going to change our intent. Our intent has always been to put good, positive, meaningful, and valuable storytelling into the world. I think, you know, we'll see specifically how things change. For instance, I think Lisa Ling's series on CNN is a great example. You know, we have an incredible platform there and, and broad canvas to kind of 
move our stories in a lot of different directions to not tell the news, but tell the deeper story of our world that is around and beneath and wrapped up in the news. And I think that's an er- that is a series that allows us to, you know, really dig in and, and tell stories of this moment. But I think, and not to force a transition into <laughs> Padma Lakshmi series on Hulu, you know, I think that's also a great example. That's a series we started developing over a year ago, and it feels very timely and relevant to, you know, going into communities that aren't necessarily given the the space to tell their stories and and get to know them and their experiences as immigrants, as Americans, as people trying to navigate their own sense of identity. And, and I think that that is a lot of what's happening in this, in, in this moment. Um, and so, you, you know, even long before this, I think we were already eager to tell those kinds of stories. So that that was the original reason for the conversation. The, uh, uh, there's a lot of firsts in this. First food show, first show for Hulu. Can you tell us about the origins of the project? Like you say, it was it was over a year ago. World a very different place. But how did the show come into being? Absolutely. You know, we we were um, connected with with Padma Lakshmi, who we admire. Um, uh, always admired and she had come with an idea for a cookbook that really examined the american cuisine through the lens of all the influences and cultures that make up america and we we talk about that in this in this kind of idealistic way but really we also experience it as we eat <laughs> and as we as we cook in our own kitchens and and i think you know, we wanted to celebrate this idea that this mixed up, mashed up cuisine that is so far ranging in our own in our own palates is also reflective of our society and all the people that have brought their lives, their tastes, their cuisines to America, including Native Americans who are the original Americans. And you know, and really make this series uh, a, a chance to get to know the stories of the people behind the food that we eat. And then, and I think with with Padma, you know, her I remember very clearly at the beginning she kind of came to us and said, you know, the hot dog, it's not American. Apple pie, there were no apples in America. Beer, it came from somewhere else. There are probably more Chinese restaurants in America. I, 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 this may be a fact, please fact check it, but there are more Chinese restaurants in America than there are McDonald's. <laughs> you know, we eat Thai takeout and pizza as if it's part of our everyday, long inherited American cuisine. And it all came from somewhere. And the people that brought it here have an incredible story to tell about how they negotiated and navigated the process of assimilation, how they were changed by being here, how they kept in touch with their own roots and cultures and, and through the food especially, and, and changed also their own relationship to their cultures 
by being exposed to others. And, and I think that was the story she really wanted to tell. And I think we, I think we did that for sure. But I think, uh, I think it really started with her and what she wanted to say about experiences that were both very personal and, and also very important to her understanding of this country. That could be actually turn out to be very timely, as it turns out. <laughs> we really hope so. Yeah, I mean, on a lot of levels, um, you know, it 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 feels like uh, an incredible moment to bring the series out, and and you know, it's about food, it's fun, it's entertaining. You can learn to cook by watching it. You can travel. Um, in a way that you actually can't travel right now. But I think more importantly, I think it's I think it's a chance for everyone to kind of reflect on on both their own roots and culture uh, and how food is an incredible conduit for that, but also a chance to, as as someone said in the series, um, you know, a chance to get to know the hands that make the food that we eat every day. So what's next? Is this part of a push? Uh, well, obviously current circumstances notwithstanding <laughs> what's it what's next is this part of a push into to more food programming or is this a one-off i mean what's what where's yeah. the company going from here i definitely want to do more but i don't want to stop telling the other great stories that we that we continue to develop and produce and those are journalism based those are crime series which is another place where where I think there's a there's just an incredible richness of dramatic and and deeply felt stories to tell. You know, we're we're exploring wildlife as a genre right now. We are we are building a very full and diverse slate. I'm passionate about history. I love places we can go in the past. You know, we've done some archival series uh, like the story of Cool with LL Cool J that really allowed us to tell cultural history through archive. For me, you know, I'm, a, I think as a company, given everything we've done from belief with Oprah to Darknet, where we explored the, the depths of the internet to food to Sanjay Gupta's series about health, it's, it, I'm kind of genre agnostic about where we're going to tell our stories, as long as that place can bring us to a way to tell stories that connects people across the world. And, and so food is hugely important to us, but so is anywhere we can find a story we can't wait to tell. Do you have any thoughts on what the state of US cable will be on the other side of this? It's obviously a vitally important industry to indies like you. It's where the bulk of commissions come from for, for US yeah. production companies. But we'd already been hearing about ad revenues and cord cutting and, uh, you know, it's profit margins being eaten into that sort of thing. On the other side of this, what sort of health do you think US cable will be in from, a, from an indies point of view? Um, yeah, I, I, I think... This year was obviously the year the streaming world kind of dominated as revenues challenged the cable networks to produce as being able to produce <laughs> was challenging as well. And having to have a slate that airs every night and has premieres and regular new programming, I think are all models that were that are tough to sustain right now. And the streaming model with their deep libraries and kind of flexible approach to things, their global reach, both as for audiences, but also with 
content coming to them, I think has given them, uh, you know, a huge advantage. I think what I think the streamers have helped show the way is that you can make bold and interesting programming. Um, and I hope that, that the cable nets see that as well and say, oh yeah, you know, people are excited to go someplace they haven't gone in terms of the kind of content they're getting. I think, I think we'll see consolidation. I think we'll see probably in time, uh, a lot of the cable networks being brought into a streaming model um, that allows them to kind of have the best of of both worlds where, where they can have platforms that are ad-based, but also streaming platforms. And I think they're still incredibly strong. They still have audiences that are loyal and brands that are vitally important. I think energizing those brands with, with you know, a very interesting and unexpected approach to programming, I think, I would encourage and I hope we'll be pitching those kinds of shows to them and I hope they'll be receptive to them. I think they'll survive just fine. There's, you know, people are watching television and they're watching streamers. I think the model has some serious kinks to work out. I think we know where it's going now and there will be a movement toward that, in my opinion, across all the all the cable networks. But that's more, to me, that's almost, that's a back-end platform kind of conversation in a way. It's a business model kind of conversation. Um, for me, the, the, the really important thing is what kind of content will emerge out of this, especially on the cable networks. And I, and I look forward to, to them wanting to take big risks as well, because I think big risks are, are paying off. David Shadrach-Smith from Part 2 Productions. Quebec-based production company Pixcom has been at the forefront of efforts to put the French-speaking Canadian province's programming on the international stage, working with distributors including Betafilm, ZDF Enterprises and TCB Media Rights to get its array of scripted and non-scripted titles on overseas networks. While Quebec's TV industry was given the go-ahead this week to restart production, Pixcom president Nicola Marola and vice president of international production Jeanette Vienne, hired last month from broadcaster Quebecor, told Carolina Kaminska the company was proceeding with caution given the scale of the shutdown it's had to deal with. We had to stop 20 productions. So the series of 20 productions stopped for us in March scripted and non-scripted so so that's that's uh, that's a very negative impact obviously so we uh, the, the the next year will be uh, will will not be good <laughs> for pixcom but because we're we're well established we're we're well run uh, uh, we will go through that and but what's going to happen is that and mainly the scripted series so we have to stop the production of four scripted series it is not yet possible to start shooting the scripted series because right now we don't have any insurance so if we if we have to stop again because of covid we would not be insured by the insurance company or by the government or by any association i i know it's uh, that problem has been resolved in other countries including france but it has not yet been resolved here so which means that we're, we're going to be we will produce each and every one of those series but it will be postponed in time which means that last year, next year will, will not be a good year for Pixcom. But the year after will be a very good year. Uh, we didn't have anyone getting sick, so that, that's very good. That's very, nobody, nobody got sick, nobody caught it in the teams. 
And, and there's about, you know, there's about 40 people working full time at Pixcom, but we hired, uh, we hire about 3000 people a year to work on the roughly 2025 series that we produce scripted and non-scripted every year. So, so that's a lot of people without a job because of COVID. So, but we kept developing big time. Uh, we kept pitching using, you know, Zoom or FaceTime and we got new show greenlit actually during COVID. So that part of the business did not stop at all. And I think it probably, it, you know, if there's anything, it, it, it's the number of, of show that we developed uh, even increased. So voila, but we, we'll get through. Uh, and as I was just saying earlier, the, this, earlier this year, the, uh, the, the provincial government of Quebec is, is officially allowed all of the audiovisual production to start again on June 8th. So we're very excited about that. Uh, we will be very cautious. We'll have to respect, you know, the protocols and so on. But, uh, but all the teams are very excited about that. And from a distribution perspective, have you seen increased demand for your shows um, from buyers in need of more content? And if so, what are they looking for specifically? We produce quite a bit of, uh, of factual series. Uh, so we produce both in French and English, right? And in English, the factual series that we do, uh, they sell pretty well already. Uh, we will know for sure down the road once we get, because we, we don't do so much distribution ourselves. We work with different distributors, with about six or seven distributors, mainly based in, uh, in Europe, uh, in the UK, in Germany. Uh, so we'll know down the road if the, the, the sales increased, but those are shows that already sold well. The, the positive impact, so we, the, the scripted series that we produced in French, but with, with a very international appeal, I can tell you that some of those series, we saw a, uh, some sort of a speed bump in, 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 in the number of uh, territories where they were sold. And in particular, for one of our series called The Wall, Cover Your Tracks. So that, that the sales for that series were, uh, were, we believe, faster in part because of COVID. I was just going to say and add to this that we've had great successes with uh, The Wall in the French market. Uh, it broke all records uh, locally. It was it aired in the, on our OTT platform, French OTT platform in Quebec, and it it broke all records. Uh, you know, of binge watching, and even our prime minister tweeted about the series during COVID. <laughs> he said, "Why don't you Why don't you go watch this series? A very good, you know, local uh, product." But like Nicolas said, uh, the 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 project is getting. Uh, real interest uh, from the, from different uh, market uh, in 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 the world. So we are working hard on you know maybe doing an English version of that series. Uh, and it's shot in a in a in a in a small town in Quebec called Fermont, and it has a very unique appeal because it, it, it they built like a one point this is a one point five kilometer wall to protect the residents from the winds. And the story takes place in that huge wall. Uh, there's a murder in there and there's an in investigation and it takes place during winter. So you've got great scenery in there. So it has a very, very uh, big global appeal because of the, you know, being shot in the winter and it's being shot in that unique environment. So it, that series has been doing very well. The wall, Cover Your Tracks, has been sold in... Uh in France, in uh, UK slash uh, US uh, to an SVOD, 
Uh, it's been sold in Russia, in a couple of East European countries, and uh, the distributors and discussions with, uh, with about 10 other buyers in Scandinavia, uh, European countries, Germany, uh, and a few other territories, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, we're very proud of that because very few French-Canadian scripted series do sell internationally. Very few, very few, very few. It is something that is new, actually. It's something that Pixcom started. We started three years ago developing, three, four years ago, developing scripted series for the local market with a, a clear will that those IPs would sell internationally. So we worked with writers and directors and a team of creative that had that as a goal as well. And, and, and the wall is a very good, and Victor Lessard is also a very good example of, 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 uh, of, of, of the result of, of this choice that we, we, uh, we made a few years ago. Uh, Victor Lessard has also been sold in about 10 different territories in Europe. Um, and, and those scripted series, uh, we also managed to attract international investments. So people from outside of Quebec reading the scripts. So before we started the shoot, reading the script and saying, wow, we believe that this French Canadian series does have a potential to sell outside of Canada, outside of French Canada. Um, so they, they believed in the series and, and, and each and every one of them, you know, from Beta, Cineflix, ZDF Enterprises, uh, uh, Telepool, uh, they all have been rewarded with, uh, uh, you know, bringing those shows recently, less than a year ago, in all those cases, uh, bringing those shows internationally. So they, uh, you know, and, and th their bet was right. And, and out of the four scripted series we have in production now, um, three of them also have uh, investment from an international distributor. Quebec has developed because there's some sort of, uh, we're kind of isolated from the rest of North America because of the language. You know, there, there, there's, 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 there's something quite strongly developed here in television. But that's one of the reasons why we, we decided to go and, and find international partners for the local shows we're doing with an international appeal is that, you know, we want to show that to the world. We want, to, we want the Scandinavian shows to be forgotten in five years and buyers all over the world to buy shows from Quebec. But this is really our ultimate goal. Nicola Marola and Jeanette Vienne from Pixcom. The COVID-19 crisis has brought the world of telenovelas to a grinding halt, depriving Latin American audiences of a cultural staple and leaving producers scrambling to respond. Cesar Diaz, chief executive of Miami-based distributor 7A Media, told Inigo Alexander how one of the global content industry's largest and longest establishing sectors is bound, however, to bounce back. Well, first of all, the world of telenovelas in Latin America, it's always been known that uh, Latin America uh, has always favored this type of genre. Uh, many of us call it the backbone of programming in in the in the free TV world or the free, free TV broadcasters, uh, once uh, television is these started developing into these other mediums and platforms, uh, the pay TVs and obviously today all the VODs and, and etc. You know that type of genre loses the it's it, not that it loses interest, but it just doesn't fit their program profile. 
Uh, and so for broadcast TV, it continues to, I think, it continues to be a, a staple of the programming grid. You still see it when you go across the different programming schedules or the different programming uh, grids of uh, throughout Latin America, that meaning from Mexico on down to, uh, to Argentina, including Brazil, you still see slots uh, for, for uh, telenovelas. Not as many... Uh, as there were decades ago, because uh, obviously there's been other types of programs, be it formats, uh, series, etc. But nevertheless, um, the telenovela is still yeah, holding some of its own in the free TV broadcasting uh, world. How that has impacted uh, the, you know, on on, on this uh, pandemic that we're all going through, I think it's. I think it's something that's across the board. It's not only affected uh, this genre, but uh, programming as a whole, as a whole entity, be it you know movies or series or whatnot. Uh, in the case of uh, telenovelas, or specifically in the case of telenovelas, there are those that were currently in production when this whole pandemic thing broke out. And I can't speak for everyone, but just because of uh, just the, the whole symptom that occurred throughout the, the Spanish-speaking uh, world in production is everything stopped. Just as we know, uh, it, it must have been happening everywhere else. So those titles that were in production or ongoing, whether it be in the middle or the beginning, the middle or the end of the production, just uh, have uh, stopped. And now what will happen after this uh, pandemic is lifted or the bans are lifted is a good question whether they'll retake the production itself, uh, which I think they would in most cases. I don't see why they wouldn't pick it up, pick up where they left off and continue on to the end, or at least make some kind, some kind of uh, accelerated ending because they want to get on to other things or move on to other things. And, and all that investment in terms of however many episodes have been produced, they don't want to you know, throw it out the window. Uh, so that may be an alternative. But certainly I think that anything that was in the beginning, middle, or end that has stopped is a good question of what's going to be happening onto that. Those that uh, just barely finished or had finished production are in a better position because all they had to do was just complete the post. And that is something that still during this pandemic has been able to uh, be uh, uh, worked out. It's going to be some interesting um, facts uh, when we come out or the bans are lifted and people go back to full-time working on see what's going to happen with these all these productions that were held off. The, so the free-to-air channels that you say traditionally rely on all the telenovelas and all the, um, all the, yeah, all the telenovelas coming through on a regular basis. How, how do you think they're going to be able to cope? I mean, do you think they're probably just buying older telenovelas or how, how can they replace the gaps that, that telenovelas have left? Yes, that's, that's basically what's been happening. But it's a two-pronged two issue. One issue has been the pandemic and how it's affected productions and how, uh, how it's impacted that, that there are really no new titles coming out, at least at this stage. And the second issue has been how this pandemic has affected advertising. And in the, at least uh, speaking in the free broadcast uh, arena, where most of the telenovelas are showing, this has had an, another impact in terms of revenues for the stations, which trickles 
throughout the whole broadcast channel, impacting all areas. And ultimately, when you get to the uh, acquisitions arena, they obviously have halted uh, any acquisitions of new content, foreign content. And the, and the answer in, in some ways has been, you know, how do we fill those slots? And as you said, uh, um, the answer has been to, to go out and, and search and acquire reruns with the idea that obviously reruns uh, are able to fill those gaps, those slots, and they acquire them at uh, obviously much lower uh, prices than first run content. So that has been sort of the, uh, uh, I don't want to say the salvation, but that has been sort of the uh, band-aid, if anything, that has uh, uh, been able to, uh, to uh, cure some of the issues here in the pandemic. And, and it's, it's been, uh, 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 I think it, it's, it's when you get it out across the world, in broad terms, it's happening everywhere. People are, or broadcasters are going back to, uh, to uh, searching for rerun or you know, older content. Uh, one because of you know the lack of new original content, and two, uh, uh, in, so in those territories where advertising has been severely curtailed for the revenues, um, you know they look for for more more economical content. And is that something that you resorted to as well at Seven Eight Media? I mean, that, have you started to offer more library content and more of the nostalgic telenovelas? My disadvantage at Seven Eight Media is that I don't I don't, I don't represent the content, the nostalgic content or the nostalgic. I used to, I mean, I used to work for Cisneros. That was where my career, I made my career in, in uh, Venevision. And they have a, a huge catalog of, of titles, telenovela titles that were, that had their golden years. And now they've had, you know, this, uh, this new wave of, uh, you know, uh, situation and they've been able to capitalize on all that. But it's, it's the bigger telenovela producers so it's it's not it's not on my level the independent distributor but more on the bigger telenovela powerhouses and those are you know from mexico televisa and azteca then you go to uh, to colombia where it's rcn and caracol and then you you go down to you know all the other ones chile argentina the big producers who are you know uh, somewhat capitalizing on this issue and in terms of being an independent distributor in the sort of the wider picture of the pandemic, how have you adjusted to it? I mean, did you rely on a lot of shows that were in current production and sort of a fresh pipeline? Or have you been able to uh, rely on older content and alternative options? For the smaller, the medium to smaller uh, uh, independent distributor, I think it's been a much rougher road or we're going through a much rougher uh, situation. As independents, we don't own the IP, or in the cases of the independent distributors where they don't own IP and we merely, we merely represent, um, we, we have to have had, or we must have content that appeals to the current situation. Now, by, by meaning appealing in, in certain terms is the one thing that appeals now to broadcasters is, uh, is the pricing. So uh, in, in those situations, uh, we've had to take price cuts in order to maintain a sales cycle. But it's become a very challenging, it's, it's challenging times for, for the small to medium distributor who doesn't have the, the prime time content or the bulk of the content that, the, the, that traditionally the broadcasters uh, may need. Because uh, uh, on, the, on the other side, um, the broadcasters 
are also, as I mentioned, as their advertising revenues have gone down and, they, and they've uh, cut acquisitions, they've also gone into their film libraries to see what content they still have rights to and be able to use them to uh, keep afloat also. How do, how do you think the telenovela industry as a whole is going to, is going to uh, survive after this? I mean, you mentioned that it's come under strain because of the competition from streamers and uh, the new players. But how do you think that the, the, the novella world is going to survive once the pandemic, once the world goes back to normal? Taking the pandemic situation out of the equation, um, I think the telenovela has uh, has been uh, shifting with the times or adjusting or tweaking with the times. I think that we definitely have learned to produce uh, telenovelas that are shorter, you know, around the 100s, the low 100s. Uh, several years ago, they spun off the, what they call the Super Series, which was going down to yeah. making the novelas, you know, even shorter, compacting them, um, and going out to making, you know, 40, 50, 60, 80. Uh, so, so that's one definite uh, sign that the telenovela has uh, uh, tweaked, uh, making them a, a lot shorter than what traditionally they used to be. I think that th- this type of length will will not i don't think it'll change if anything uh, after the pandemic i think the storylines may change a little bit you know adjusting to the times and there are titles out there content that's already focusing or around in and around this pandemic situation so i think that's going to be true also for the telenovelas whether it be you know productions of the storylines that haven't been you know told or or having to do with you know the pandemic situation or coming out of the pandemic you know the the, the fictionalized uh, issue of it you know i i think it's an expected issue that the newer telenovelas will have some type of content dealing or sub trauma or mm-hmm. sub storyline dealing to do with the with the current situation caesar diaz from 7a media that's all for this episode remember if you'd like to share your story of coping with covid19 with the international tv industry email us using the address press at c21media.net there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow but in the meantime stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following c21 online on mobile and social media Thanks for listening.